episode 118, Kaiser Legend Discusses Healer, Leader, Partner Book. I'm your host, Dr. Justin Trosclair, and today we're Dr. Jack Cochran's perspective. Join 2017 and 2018 Podcast Awards nominated host as we get a behind the curtain look at all types of doctors and guest specialties. Let's hear a doctor's perspective. Appreciate the time that you spend with me in your ears, working out, driving, cutting grass, and whatever else that you do. We are a mere one week away from the six-week podiatry series. Again, we're going to have, we got a guy that deals with the Olympics, created his own shoe, um, Spa. Why you should add that, or maybe could you add that? We got a podcaster, probably seen it on social media. He interviewed me, I interviewed him, and then a uh, practice management guy for podiatry. And then we'll follow that series up with a mastermind group, student loans, and a clinic gym hybrid. That's going to round out the next almost two, two and a half months. So stay tuned to those. Really excited about that. Get your taxes done. It's coming up quickly. Hey, you know, I was interested in looking at, you know, functional movement, functional rehab. And I'll tell you what, it is cool to see a kid grow up at six months, you know, they're starting to lift their booty up in the air. It looks like they're about to take off, but they don't know how to like throw the arm out forward, but they're really good at flipping over. And when you try to hold them, like you can really feel them trying to, to turn. So really cool to kind of study what she's doing and then be able to study that in humans and start looking at patterns that aren't functioning great for adults, uh, at least I'm enjoying it. <laughs> Hopefully, y'all know what I'm talking about. All right, well, today on the show, we've got the Dr. Jack Cochran. We'll say it again in the uh, introduction, but my goodness, 20 years, he was the CEO, national physician leader at the Kaiser Permanente Federation, pretty much managed 10 million policyholders and 21,000 doctors. He lectures all over the place. You know, I was telling one of my friends about... Uh, I was like, you know what I had on the podcast today? And he goes, no. And I was telling him, he's like, the Jack Cochran? I was like, yeah. He's like, oh, man, that's a big deal, dude. I was like, I know. And uh, anyway, so he's on to talk about his new book, Healer, Leader, Partner. So we're going to go over a few things like the healthcare cost inflation. You know, it's going from 10% to 18% GDP. What's the, you know, bankruptcy, the number three cause of death in America? What is that? Um you know, one of the key points I thought was, remember, the role of the patient is involuntary and instantaneous, right? People don't wake up and want to break their arm that day. So we just have to, they have to come see us. And whether that means they get the MRI or they fix the refrigerator, I mean, that's a real pocketbook question that they have to ask. We'll go over a little bit of the history of insurance and then how all these subspecialties of specialties occurred. Uh, talking about a little bit of government regulation, cost of MRIs here versus in other countries. And even though the standard of care in other countries could be just as good, like some of the surgeons, should there be a limit to how much like insurance company CEOs make? Uh, the role of EMR, some of the negative effects and ways to mitigate that. He actually has a, he didn't even like giving the analogy, but he was reading the 9-11 tragedy report of like what happened and how it was compared to a hospital. And you just got to hear that story. It's near the end. It's really good. Plus, we, he has about four questions about responsibility. Of course, all these questions that I ask, he just kind of gives a, more than just an overview, actually. He really answers some of these questions. So I probably could have went for like three hours with the guy, but I want you to read the book, you know? So, so, so um, I kind of was like, look, just give us the couple minute version that we all get, you know, get the gist of what's going on. And some real teasers and get us to want to read the book. And, and I definitely think you're going to get a lot of good information from this episode as well, including 
how hospitals can band together to better serve an entire community. For instance, should every hospital have a stroke department or not? And so he'll go through that and answer some of those questions, like I said. So without further stalling, all the show notes can be found at a doctorsperspective.net slash 118. One more little thing. Slowly but surely, I'm getting transcripts now. So maybe not this week you'll have it, but in the future, check back and some of these shows will have the uh, transcripts. I started with the top 10 of 2018 and 2017, and then I'll start kind of going to filling in the gaps from there. All right, let's go hashtag behind the curtain. Live from China and Colorado, today on the show, we have a medical doctor. He is an author. But more than that, he's been a plastic surgeon in Denver, I want to say almost his entire career. He was on the board of directors for Kaiser for almost eight, became the CEO of the Permanente Federation, and he's even counseled the White House and talking about like health policy and integrative policies and, and all those types of things. And so now he's got this book out. It's called Healer, Leader, Partner, Optimizing Physician Leadership to Transform Healthcare. Please welcome to the show, Dr. Jack Cochran. Hello. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Man, Colorado, that's my stomping grounds. We uh, had a clinic there for roughly six or seven years, and it's great to, to hear from Colorado people. Yeah, good. Well, we, we just dug out of a big blizzard, so we're feeling the, um, the joy of springtime. Yeah, isn't that crazy? Spring is always like the most snow time. You, yeah. Just when you want to quit, you're just like, no, no, strap on, buddies. Yeah, Here we go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I think the way we love to create the beginning of an interview is just trying to find out a little bit about your backstory. You know, why'd you become a plastic surgeon? And then you can fast forward a whole bunch of stuff. And then what was the catalyst to uh, to write the book? And then we'll have some specific questions, you know, about the book and topics in there. And, and sound okay? Sounds great. All right. Take it away. Give us a few minute introduction of yourself. Yeah. So I, I, was, I did not come from a physician family. I didn't have a, a long legacy of doctors in my family. So when I went to medical school, I guess I sort of assumed I would be what we would call a GP or a family doctor. And then when I got into medical school, you get exposed to all these incredible specialties and subspecialties. And uh, I ended up with two areas that I really seemed to like. And one was pediatrics, interestingly enough. I think the pediatric faculty at the school were were so attentive to teaching that they really made the rotation and the experience very positive. But then somewhere I found in my DNA, I, I, I was a surgeon, and that was uh, something that uh, I didn't anticipate, but realized that that was true. And so as I tried to find a field where I could do surgery and also take care of kids, I looked at all the different specialties. And the one that ended up being uh, the best fit for me was reconstructive plastic surgery. Um, the kids had definable problems and deformities or burns. And if you were trained, uh, you could really make a, a significant difference. So it really attracted me. And, you know, they were, they, I didn't have to deal with, uh, you know, death and dying, which was not something that I necessarily thought was going to be my strength. So I became a plastic surgeon, special interest in peds, although I did everything. And then after residency, I went into private practice, as we call it, in Denver and worked with a great a couple of plastic surgeons, learned a lot. But it was at a time when the insurance companies were moving into this thing called managed care, and it became harder and harder to get simple procedures, which I thought were really important for children, just to get them uh, approved for coverage by an insurance company. So along the way, I, I 
began to work alongside this group called Kaiser Permanente in Denver, and they were relatively new. They'd been there 15 or 20 years, and they had really good docs. And so they recruited me to come over and start their plastic surgery service, and that's how I got got to be over there. When I was there um, in a group practice with a bunch of good colleagues, my uh, my colleagues decided I was um, I had some potential to be a leader, so I was elected to the board of directors. And then once I was on there, uh, I ended up being uh, elected as the president of the medical group. So my leadership track was very very quick. And as I say in the book, why I think leadership is important training is that my medical background, I had four years of medical school, six years of surgery residency, extensive validation, certification, examination. You know, I really was uh, well prepared to be a surgeon. And then when I went into the business of being a, a leader in the business of medicine, my training was just in time, on the job, and trial and error. And, and none of those were anything yeah. like what I was used to. But I got into leadership. Uh, it turns out that I had a knack for it. My colleagues said that the reason they thought I should be in leadership was I was a good listener and I was uh, uh, very balanced and not overly reactionary. So whatever that meant, I became uh, president of the Colorado Region Medical Group. And we did so well that I then... I uh, became recruited to be the national physician lead for Kaiser Permanente. And when I left, we had 21,000 physicians and 10 million members and eight regions. And it was really a very stimulating, very challenging job. But that's how I got interested in the bigger picture of healthcare delivery and not just taking care of patients one at a time. So that that's how I got from being sort of pre-med to my medical training to leadership and then um, leading Kaiser Permanente's physicians. I like it, the way you answered that because it's it gives so much more depth into like, okay, this is why I'm qualified to write this book. I wasn't just, you know, a doctor for 30 years. I had so much leadership and like you said, 10 million and 21,000 doctors. I, you got to be a special type of person, I think, to run those types of companies. So the questions I'll have, we you don't have to give the full answer because that's why people need to read the book. But, you know, I looked at the book and I pulled some of the major, you know, headlines in the book and what you wanted to answer through them. So some of these, I reworded it, combined a few together. So, you know, what I'm saying is when you answer them, you don't have to be like super long winded and, and give away the whole book. But just give us enough information where we're like, well, that's really interesting. I need to read more because that's probably a 20 page yeah, chapter okay, right good. there. <laughs> so, okay. Because <laughs> when you hear the questions, you'd be like, come on, man, that's three chapters. <laughs> Okay. So the, the theme of the book is the doctors are needing to be leaders. They're typically kind of getting burned out or they're not making enough money or they're, they're making plenty of money depending on your specialty and everything. But in reality, it all comes down to the, it's about patients. It's about patient care. And there might be a trend going on right now that patients are the ones that are having to still sort through lots of information or they get like left high and dry. So is there any, a simple answer a little bit of how a doctor can not really feel burned out so that patients don't have to be guessing well, what is the best course of action because you really didn't explain it well. Or there's three or four options and I don't know what's best for me. Right. That's really kind of the, the crux of the book in some ways um, because I do talk about the trajectory of the physician career, how it has gone and, and how it can possibly get better and then really linking it to the plight of the patient. So I'll I'll sort of give the capsule, which is 
in in my career, three decades plus in healthcare, there has been amazing advances. There have been uh, better treatments, uh, breakthroughs, cures. I mean, just some amazing things have happened on a lot of uh, diseases. And yet, at the same time, there's two data points that still loom hanging over the care delivery results. The first one is the number three cause of death in the U.S. is medical error. After oncology and heart disease, medical error is the third cause of death in, in our country. The second statistic is the number two cause of family, financial failure, and bankruptcy are medical bills. Number one is job loss. Number two is medical bills. So in the middle of this reality of fantastic care and great results, we still have unevenness of care, unevenness of access, and medical errors. And that's a backdrop for why it's become harder for uh, physicians to practice. When I started, healthcare was 10% of GDP, and there was two journals in my specialty. Today, healthcare is 18% of GDP, and there are probably 40 journals and 100 blogs and so many websites. There are so many places that knowledge is developed, published, and shared that the old computer called the human brain has become just overstretched. And so the practice of medicine has gotten more complex and more difficult for physicians, and that's part of our burnout. But I will just quickly digress to the family and what they're going through. And I'm going to talk about the physician career and how we can make it better. But before that, I must say that no matter how tough uh, the job is for an individual physician or, or a specialty or whatever, no matter how tough our job is or how much it's changed, the role of patient is involuntary. Nobody, you know, except mm -hmm. for a few hypochondriacs that we know, nobody wakes up in the morning and says, you know, gosh, it's been a while since I was a patient. I'd like to, I'd like to try that today. I'd like to be a patient. <laughs> yeah, nobody wants to be the patient. Yeah. yeah. And so while I say it's involuntary, it's often also instantaneous. In other words, today I'm fine. Tomorrow some doctor told me I had cancer. Today I'm fine. Tomorrow I have a heart attack. Today I'm fine. Tomorrow I break my leg. So the role of patient is un involuntary and often instantaneous. And we must not forget that because physicians, even though our jobs can be tough, we still have disproportionate impact on healthcare. Patients still trust us the most for healthcare information. Now, as far as which healthcare professional they trust the most overall, that's nurses. We're not number one. But for healthcare information, <laughs> They trust us the most. And so patients who are facing difficult decisions around health care and affording health care, remember families used to pay nothing for health coverage because their employer paid it, and then it was a couple hundred, a few hundred a month for premiums. And then as it started to go in that 10% to 18% of GDP trajectory, health insurance costs went up and up and up. And Patients and employers and governments kind of hit the wall because this is wealth transfer from the family or the company or the government into healthcare from other things, education and right. all kinds of opportunities. So families went to these 
high deductible cost sharing kind of plans. And those were projected to be a way to save money. The premiums, instead of being 1200 a month, would be 800 a month or 600 a month. The fact is, it, it's also a bit of a gamble because if you get sick, you've got that deductible that still doesn't go away. And so what happens with the average family, and we're not talking about just poor people or, or homeless people, we're talking about average families. Every month with these deductible yeah, they paycheck issues, to paycheck. they have discussions uh, inside the family. I call it rationing health care at the kitchen table. And, and what families do is they say, well, Johnny needs an MRI because he hurt his knee playing soccer. But the clutch went out in my truck this week. My truck gets me to work. We've got to spend the $1,000 this month on the truck. Or Susie needs her tonsils out, but this month the refrigerator is broken. We've got to spend the money on the refrigerator. So families at the sharp point of this affordability of health care are making decisions to ration their own health care every month. And so as physicians... While we have had legitimate uh, decrease in our satisfaction and our career satisfaction, we have got to not only fix our own careers, but we've got to be sure we don't lose track of the patients. And so the premises of my book are, um, and, and uh, so let, let me just explain how, how we got to where we are. The complexity that I alluded to where we used to have one or two journals and now we've got all these journals and randomized control studies and many more medications and many more types of surgery, the, the complexity of knowledge, information, technology, diagnostics, and therapeutics has overwhelmed us in terms of the human brain. And so the first wave of complexity actually drove doctors into more subspecialization. Cardiologists broke up into three different, three different types of cardiologists or four. And so it wasn't just um, specialists, but then subspecialists because of all the knowledge. We have Cardiologists who take care of the electrical system of the heart and others that take care of the arteries. So the first wave of complexity drove more and more medical subspecialization and made it harder and harder for primary care to, to continue to keep up. And this was part of the source of, uh, of dissatisfaction among physicians. It became harder and harder. And then one of the cure-alls we thought or was sold to us was this electronic health record. Once once we get the electronic health record, everything will get better. Well, not so fast. Um, what we learned as doctors, and I learned as a physician and a leader of physicians, was that when you drop an electronic record in the middle of a practice, it slows the doctors down, makes them less efficient, and it adds to the cost. And so the actual implementation is not the solution because um, – Electronic records are not like new cars. They don't come with an owner's manual that says this is how you use this device to transform healthcare. Much of the learning is on the job, and it's been very taxing for doctors. We have been very frustrated with electronic records and, and computers, and so it hasn't done all the things it should do, and it didn't necessarily make the complexity better. But along the way, we, we got more knowledge that the computers helped. We became better at treating chronic conditions. And so the second wave of complexity, which further made it difficult to practice, is patients who had these difficult diseases are now being cured or being turned into a chronic condition. HIV was no longer fatal. It became a chronic condition. And so patients lived to have second and third complex conditions. 
or they live longer. I'm a baby boomer. We want to live forever. And so the second wave of complexity wasn't just that the knowledge and the information were deeper, but patients got multi-system, multi-organ problems, and the subspecialist alone was not enough. And it brings back in how do we create primary care partnerships with patients to work with and use the specialist to great advantage, but we have to have somebody who's coordinating and integrating the care. So primary care has come back. But this has all gone on on the base of a group of doctors who were trained to be single practitioners. In other words, the doctor-patient relationship used to be where all the action was. And now we have teams and we have computers and we have all these protocols. And it's really made it harder for us to, to learn. And so we've had to learn how to work in teams. We've had to, how to learn how to use the computers. And that was before the last 10 years when we start to get big data analytics and artificial intelligence. So the role of doctor has been increasingly difficult, increasingly complex, and increasingly difficult for a lot of people. And the burnout rates are high. What we must not do is to say is to take either extreme on, on this issue of physician burnout. One extreme is uh, get over it. You're well-respected. You're well-paid. Lots of people like to be doctors. Just, just get over it. That doesn't help any for people who are really, really suffering. The other extreme is, mm -hmm. oh, you poor thing. It's just awful. It must be terrible to be a doctor. Well, that doesn't do any good either. What we have to decide with the physician career is how do we study it? How do we actually take it as another one of our problems with our good science and our good analytics? And how do we study the career? And we find out some things. Well, number one, it's better if, if physicians uh, do have some help with their computers, whether it's scribes or other help so that they can spend more time with the patient, which is what we like, and less time with the computer. We also find the development of teams. So we're finding things that help with the physician career, and I think that's important. But just to, to conclude how I got to this book is realizing that while doctors were frustrated and in some ways having a hard time, patients were still suffering. And so patients encounter the healthcare system physically, socially, psychologically, financially. And if, if all we do is say, I'm here for your sore throat, I'm here for your broken toe, once you're done with that, you're on your own. Patients lose a partner with issues like affordability and access and, and other things that, that trouble them. So that's where I came up with this notion that the role of healer is our, is our covenant with the patient. It's based on knowledge, trust, and, and skill. And so the role of healer is the sacred relationship that we have taken on because patients trust us with some of the most complex and frightening things that happen to them in their lives. So the role of healer is important. A physician as leader doesn't step away when patients say, but I can't afford health care, or I can't get access to this or that, or I don't know how to do this. The physician as leader says, I need, to, I need to stay involved. I need to find ways to contribute beyond just my clinical skills. And that's a whole venture of how do physicians uh, take their credibility, their skills, and their knowledge and contribute to improvements in healthcare besides just improving for patients. How do we make hospitals more efficient? How do we make communities healthier? Those kind of things. And the final role, healer, leader, and the final one is partner, which is 
we went to school based on our grades in the sciences. We studied by ourselves. We were examined by ourselves. And we generally worked by ourselves for many years. And now the complexity of a, a highly automated computerized world requires that we have partnerships. We work differently with teams and nurses and specialty and primary care. And even how do we work with our IT colleagues so they don't just hand us a computer that frustrates us and bugs us, but we actually help participate in improving things like that. So we have to continue to be healers and leverage that high ground to also learn how to be better at leading and better at partnering. And that's the whole premise of the book. Okay. So I'm going to break down a couple of things that you were saying. I was kind of taking some notes. I've noticed here, you know, I'm working in a hospital in China. They still have like the, probably going to butcher the name, but a Siemens MRI machine. So it's really a good machine. And it's only a hundred bucks, hundred US dollars to get a, um, an MRI. But in America, that same thing is going to cost thousand bucks. So for instance, when my mom came visit, I was like, hey, look, let's MRI all these different parts of your body. And when you go back home, if the doctor needs it, you can just show it to them. You're not going to have a report. They can always bill the insurance for the report if they really need one, or they can actually, you know, just read it themselves. What's going on with that? Is there a way that we can, or why hasn't the, the cost been contained more when other countries are still charging so little? Is it kind of like the R&D part where I know they say that with the medicines, the research and the development. So certain countries need to pay their pay more because obviously a poor country is not going to be able to um, afford it, but then they should still have access to it. What's yeah, your thoughts? So um, the cost of healthcare is not a simple calculus, but one of the myths that we used to believe was, well, it's all about utilization. And so if you look at uh, the number of MRIs per thousand residents in Canada or something versus the U.S. It's very different. And and so more were done. But that's not always true. Some like Japan and some other countries also have very high utilization of technological procedures and, and interventions. So it's not just volume and it's not just the fact that we uh, use and, and do more. But that's part of it. There's no question that um, we do a lot of procedures. If you need a, a third revision joint replacement in the U.S., you're a lot, it's a lot easier to get it than in most countries because most countries would just simply say, you know, we, we just don't believe that's part of our, our mission. We, we want to do all the joint replacements we can on people in their 50s through 80s or 90s, but we can't just keep doing them forever. So there is a certain societal expectation. The other thing is pricing. Mm. Um, the, the United States has a higher pricing model for almost everything in healthcare. I mean, you'll hear people who go to places for joint replacements, heart surgery, et cetera. And, and you don't want to use extreme examples, but to use one, um, open heart surgery in India by Dr. Devi Shetty, who's a world-known heart surgeon, pediatric heart surgeon, whose results stand up with the best in the United Kingdom because, you know, India is a, a, com a British Commonwealth country. His results stand up to the best in the U.K., and he, he gets the surgeries done for like $1,200 for the um, hospital, surgeon, nurse, et cetera. Now, that doesn't relate to the United States, but the fact is when somebody like that can get the results that, that are just as good as ours, you start to think, well, why? that's why people do medical tourism. They go other places and get things done. Right. But it, it does show that the pricing is part of the equation, and, and that's been shown in – how people look at 
how much do people charge for a total joint replacement in Canada versus the U.S., China versus the U.S., et cetera. And, and it's very different. So pricing is part of it. Utilization is part of it. And, and the other thing is uh, expectations of patients. Uh, we have a, a sort of an undercurrent that is not – it's not always and not necessarily true, which is more is better. And it, it tr comes out of this – I go to the doctor, I've twisted my knee. They say, yeah, you've twisted your knee, I'll examine you. I think you need to uh, get a brace, use some crutches, and see me if it's not better in three weeks. Some people think, wait a second, that's not enough. I need an MRI. And I saw this play out when I was in a, in a summer uh, educational program with a group of international students. I was in my 50s at the time. And they would play soccer and twist their knee or this or that. And the, the university would always try to ship them off to the emergency room for an MRI. And people from Australia and Holland and Italy thought it was oh, absurd. Man. They said, why would I have an MRI? Well, you have to. Well, you know, we have to be sure. So there's this patient expectation that I'm not getting good care or the doctor's not attentive or the doctor's not concerned or the doctor's not competent if I'm not getting all these interventions. And that's that undercurrent of expectation doesn't correlate with really the, the good science of when things are truly indicated. And we should never withhold care when it's necessary and, and, you know, keep people from getting what they need. But there is some real discipline and science around what works and what doesn't. Uh, one of the great examples is when you see these new generation medications that come out for everything from rheumatoid arthritis to psoriasis to cancer. If you take a look at those medications, they're all of a sudden no longer uh, 50 or $60 a month or 1000 or $10,000 a month. But when you track new medications over time, the number of them that have modifications of the indications is very, it's a majority. The number of them that find new problems and, and complications is a very large majority. And then the number of them that are taken off the market or changed is not a majority, but is also a significant number. So we have a tendency to jump on, on new new medications, and then later we find out that there are some problems with it or there's some other issues. And that's just part of our system. We we have this, this notion that we want to get the, the best and we want to get it now. And part of that grew out of a system that was employer-based insurance with no co-payments, no co-insurance, and, and no sharing of premiums. So we grew up thinking yeah, we can have Do it what all. you want. It like, yeah. cost me a penny. What about this? In our country, we, the doctors can get sued. I don't know if there's certain states, they make it harder to sue a doctor. And I don't know if that's translated into doing less services, because it seems like a lot of medicine can be said, we don't need to do the MRI. Really, we don't even have to do the x-ray on that sprained ankle. But if I don't do it, and there's something more going on, then I get sued. And it's this whole big thing. But, you know, for a lot of MSK stuff, we don't need x-rays, we don't need the MRIs. You can go to PT or Cairo or, you know, somebody who can, who knows how to diagnose it and treat it, you know, send them off to the people that actually do that, you know, all day. So I guess the question is, if litigation was harder to do, would there be less tests yeah. ordered? Well, there are people who would say to you, actually, Justin, the science doesn't support that. There's just no real good science that supports that. But I, I think that uh, in general, there's no question that physicians practicing medicine in the United States have in the back of their mind that possibility. And what what people that, are, that have not had the responsibility of the clinician or the physician 
What they don't understand is just how troubling it is to get sued. And you know, people say, oh, you know, people get sued. You turn it over to the lawyer. It doesn't cost you any money. No, it's, it hits you at your, at your core. It hits you at your, your soul and your sense of values. Now, we know there are certain people in any profession that are not as dedicated or as ethical, but the overwhelming majority care deeply about their patients and their results. And so lawsuits are very debilitating and very difficult and very hard on, on most of us. So, yes, there is that little flicker in the back of our minds that we certainly don't want to get sued even though there are studies that show that they don't think it necessarily uh, increases that much. I think the fact is, if you look at the cost of liability insurance, if you look at the number of lawyers in the U.S. who do uh, medical litigation versus other parts of the world, it is a very significant problem. However, it would be short-sighted to say once we fix that, everything gets all hunky-dory. There's the other thing of patient expectation. There's the other thing of price. There's the, the other thing of just the um, attractiveness of, of new and, and fancy therapy. So a lot of those things go together. And, and part of it's just the, the uh, expectation of the American. Um, of the American. We, we, we kind of think in healthcare, we'd sort of like to have the miracles. Now, that, that set of expectations, I must say, has been changed over the last many years as more cost sharing uh, came to bear on patients and families. And cost sharing was was sold as a way to eliminate or minimize unnecessary or or extreme demand. And that's a little bit of a simplification and a little bit one-sided because it essentially assumes that there's a whole bunch of unnecessary care. And if we just uh, put a price tag on it, people won't ask for unnecessary things. Well, the inconvenient reality that we've learned is two things. Number one, if you increase the cost to the individual, out-of-pocket costs, cost-sharing, deductibles, whatever it's called, where they have to pay out-of-pocket, as I alluded to earlier, they ration health care inside the family at the kitchen table. But if you do have significant cost-sharing, two things have been discovered uh, over time. Number one, yes, it does diminish the demand for unnecessary or marginally necessary care. That, on the one hand, has some positives. The inconvenient, unfortunate other side of that is it also decreases the, the demand or the request for necessary care. Patients simply say, mm. I just can't afford it. And so they don't get their prescriptions filled or they take half of it or they don't get it refilled. It, it, is, it is true that, that uh, cost sharing decreases some of the unnecessary demand, but it also decreases compliance and necessary demand. So it's not a cure-all, and, and it has to be thoughtfully deployed because we don't want people who need medication to not get them because of cost. Yeah. yeah. And I'd venture to say here at the hospital, there's some patients that I work on that I would normally might not have worked on in America because they have no other options here. And I just take it easy on what I do, you know, just there's you know, just scale back mm -hmm. what I can do because they're like, it's this or nothing. And so if I can get them a, some relief, then I did, you know, I did my job. But in America, I'm kind of like, well, I don't know. It can go wrong it can go sideways. And it hasn't yet. So it kind of is building my confidence, too, of maybe I was being a little too conservative sometimes. But um. When you're referring to electronic health records, 
maybe having to like hire. And I know as a private practice, there's not as many private practice doctors. The most of them are getting bought out by big corporations and stuff. You talking about where to you have are? a scribe? Yeah. Well, in America now. Sorry. To, to hire a scribe, I don't know if a lot of doctors or or hospitals would want to pay to have someone doing that all day, or just a nurse that's already working there would do it. Yeah. But it seems like I've heard patients like, you know, the doctor just stares at a computer the whole time, just clicking buttons. And I don't really feel like I'm getting the care that I used to get, but I know that they have to use this. So what do we right. do with that? Well, uh, f- first of all, as I said, on day one, when you put in an electronic health record, two negative things happen. You slow down your doctors and you increase your cost. And neither one of those is going to make healthcare better in and of itself. What I've seen, it's not quite a bifurcation, but I've seen physicians who just suffered with the computer, really hard time using it, hard time figuring it out. And even, not worse, but even in addition to that, made it very difficult for them to relate to the patient because they were spending so much time facing the screen. Well, there are ways to configure the room and the screen and all that so that patients and doctors can look at the screen together. And there are physicians who invest significant time Mm. to get really good at the computer. And so the best world is to have a computer that's user-friendly enough and has the right kind of uh, artificial intelligence so that they don't have to just type out everything, but they can use, you know, clicking certain messages and certain diagnoses, et cetera. So design of the computer and computer system makes makes it better and easier, and some of that has happened. And others are just the docs say, I've got to invest a lot of time right now to get good at this so that I'm not always rebooting and relearning things. And so there are super users. There are docs who walk out at 5 o'clock, 5.30 from their office, Mm -hmm. happy and have used the computer successfully all day. And there are others who are working their inbox and all that at 8 or 9 o'clock at night. So it is far from a simple solution or simple answer. But because of the safety of having that electronic record accessible, nobody's going to go back to paper. And and the the, com- the complex patients, right. you, you have to have some way to find their their care. So in in the se- the second wave of complexity, multiple patients with multiple system disease. The first was just the, the medical knowledge, information, and technology. But these patients that require coordination and and team care, if you have a complex patient with heart failure and they're seeing a cardiologist with a paper or computer chart in the cardiologist's office that is not connected to the uh, pulmonary doc who's seeing them for some pulmonary hypertension and cough and and difficulty breathing and who is also uh, seeing an endocrinologist for diabetes, if those doctors are not connected with a similar or a compatible or an interconnected record, you have three very complex problems being solved in silos. And, and I'll tell you, the, um, I hate this example, but the, the task force that examined the 9-11 tragedy in New York City, the 9-11 commission, when they came to their conclusions, they said what was amazing, shocking, and disturbing was that the FAA had a lot of knowledge, including knowledge about the planes and the, and the hijackers. The FBI had certain information about some of this. The Secret Service had some information. The Army had some information. The police had information. 
all of these entities had information, but they were not shared, connected, or linked. And if had they been, then the FAA might have picked up that there were people doing pilot lessons at a certain place that the FBI had an interest in because of their background and that the police had seen something on it. So when the 9-11 Commission tried to explain what went wrong, and this is right out of their report, and this is this was just stunning to me. They said there were so many people that had lots of information and even had the right information, but they were functioning like a bunch of specialists in a hospital. All these high-powered people had great information, but they weren't talking to each other or communicating other than through the chart. And I thought, the 9-11 Commission, trying to explain the worst tragedy in the history of the American culture, goes to the my profession and says it's just like a hospital. Now, I still find that just shocking that they actually think that's how hospitals work. Now, unfortunately, the number three cause of death in this country is medical error. And, and by the way, I've had people say, well, that's, that's not true anymore. It's true. It's still true. It's it's um, 400 and some thousand deaths a year are due to medical error. Documented. It's a jumbo jet. Confirmed in 2018. Still true. Number three cause of death. Ahead of accidents and ahead of uh, certain other illnesses. But it's behind only heart disease and cancer. Well, real quick. Because, you know, I'm not sure how it works in, in, a, in a major, major hospital. I mean, I know, you know, private practice, it's, it's oh, you got to sign this HIPAA form. Oh, you got to sign that HIPAA form. Oh, we didn't get it in time. So it's a real pain. But in a big hospital, are you able to see the entire patient record, even if you're working on the spine and this person's working on the heart and this guy's on the lung? Can you all all see those notes? That would represent the ideal state. Uh, it does not exist. I don't understand why it's not in it. And, and what I think they sold us, yes. everybody has to do EHR. It's going to be so great. Oh, great. Then you should have my record from, from uh, Dr. Bob down the street. You're like, um, no, 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 that's not how it works. We have a thousand different literally like programs that we can use. Right. They don't talk to each other. And, Nothing's and saved in the cloud for everybody else to see. That's the notion behind the legislation around interoperability. The interoperability says we're not going to drive – all the computer companies out of business but one, but we want to have these rules and regulations which says if you're going to build a new computer system, it has to be interoperable with the old one so that you don't have that continuing silos. We are a long way from that, but that is, that's how you would design it if you were starting today. You would say, we're going to design a computerized system that's going to be very standardized. Now, doctors like customized. They're like, I want my little thing. Well, we're going to have to accept certain things that are standardized, and then we're going to have to learn how to work with them, just like we do all computers that were handed. You know, I talk about the other thing is this notion of affordability, which doctors often, um, maybe not so much now, but traditionally physicians have felt like my job is to take care of the patient. My job is to be available and knowledgeable and compassionate and provide great care. And affordability is about the lawyers, the insurance companies, the hospitals, all these other entities. And I'm, I'm, I'm solving the affordability uh, 
issue by pointing fingers at other people. Well, 83 cents of every healthcare dollar is spent on healthcare, and those decisions are still made overwhelmingly as outgrowths of a relation between doctors and, and patients. And the doctor has a significant say. And so all this stuff about you know medical malpractice and are you up to date and do I do I get the best and the brightest of everything? That's always been in the, in the background. But now that patients are sharing costs, they often go, I don't want an MRI. Do you have a cheaper test? Can I get a X-ray or a CT or something? And w- one of the quotes that I thought was um, again very disturbing because of of where it came from was uh, Warren Buffett. As he's become more interested in healthcare, he he even said that uh, corporate America didn't need the tax cuts that that Trump put in place. What we need is to control healthcare inflation. And he said that healthcare is the tapeworm of the American economy. It just continually drains all of the blood and all of the nutrients out of the American economy. And I've often said that uh, healthcare inflation is like untreated diabetes or blood pressure, doesn't necessarily, you don't necessarily know it or don't perceive it or don't even have any suffering from it until you have a stroke or a heart attack or something like that. And and Buffett is right because when you go from 10% to 18% of GDP, which is my career track, 8% of the GDP, that's the whole gross domestic product of the whole country, has been diverted yeah. from education and job and raises and infrastructure and potholes and rehabilitation from all those things into healthcare. Even the state of Massachusetts, who's been for over 10 years, has been working on healthcare reform. Even they still, almost all the increased spending in the state goes to healthcare. And so Buffett's right. It, it, is, it is an emergency that nobody is fully uh, endorsed. And yet, um, hospitals, pharmaceutical companies, lawyers, doctors, many of them are still making good money. And the question is, who's responsible, who's going to own it, and who's going to make it happen? Because it's uh, it's still getting worse. Well, this isn't going to fix all the problems, but my two cents, I'm wondering, if all these health insurance companies had some sort of co-op where, hey, all right, you're the CEO of this gigantic corporation. I understand you can make a million or a couple million but a lot of them are making $18, $20 million, something, you know, it's a, lot of, it's a lot of profit. So I'm always wondering, is there not a way to set up the insurance companies, kind of like a co-op where, hey, we collected $250 million this year, but we only spent $100 million. Well, instead of it just going to our profit or our shareholders, that money now gets distributed back to everybody who paid premiums this year. And it seems like now that money is coming right back to you and you can spend it how you want. Yeah. Well, but that's not how it works. It just concentrates all the yeah, Kaiser and Blue Cross so and I all that. So I talked about the four questions that physicians should um, should ponder. Uh, one is what kind of ancestor are you going to be? And that's the combination of am I going to leave behind a that I want my grandson to enter? Am I going to leave behind an economy that my grandson can survive in? That sort of thing. Number two is is excellent good enough, which says, Yes, we can cure cancers we never used to cure, but if patients can't even even afford the basic treatments, is excellent good enough. And it refers to are we we doing our jobs if all we care about is clinical quality? We've got to also care about fairness, access, et cetera, and affordability. Third question is how big is our responsibility? And that's where healer, leader, partner comes in, which is we can't just sit on the sidelines and say I did my job because I did a good gallbladder operation. And the patient got a $70,000 bill because I was out of network or something. And the patient now has to mortgage their house to pay for it. 
And But the fourth question is the one you're asking now, which is in many ways the most wicked of the four questions, which is how broad is our accountability? And I would use an example of a city, and this is what you're alluding to. So supposing there's three hospitals or three organized systems of healthcare, including doctors, in a city of a million. And supposing you've got the biggest system and your system takes care of 400,000 of the million. You are a citizen, a neighbor, a physician, a friend, a participant in the city, and you are responsible for 400,000 people for their care. Do you care about the other 600,000? And the simple answer is, well, of course I do. Really? Do you do anything unusual or out of the ordinary to demonstrate that? And so those would look like Two competing hospitals sit down and say, you know, we both have stroke units. We both get about seven admissions a week. We should but not both have stroke units. One of us should close. We both have oncology. We both have cardiac surgery programs. They're both low volume. Who's going to close? Those are the kinds of questions. Or we have a new way of treating strokes at our hospital. We're not going to share it with you. It's a competitive advantage. Yeah, for they us. want the profit. That's the wicked fourth yeah. question, which is how big is our sense of responsibility? And that's where you say, I'm a full citizen of a city of one million, but I will only commit to taking care of 400,000 people. And by making that commitment, I will actually turn my back on 600,000. That's a wicked question. And then yeah. I see hospital systems that refuse to acknowledge each other or find any way to work together, whether it's on the nursing shortage, on on uh, ambulance care, on uninsured care. They all continue to compete, and, and they miss the Warren Buffett message, which is you're all competing to the tapeworm. You're all competing. But the other thing we do in the United States is, as you say, we'll, we'll pay a CEO 40 or $50 million for a good year. Doesn't take too many of those, and, and there's not too many people making that much money. So it's very hard on the way up the corporate ladder to say, okay, now it's time to stop. Your salary is at 200000 or 400000 which is still pretty good money. But it's time to stop and become you know, a very socially conscious person. I, I think we, all, we have the, the incentives at the top are, to, are really very seductive to be very successful. So anyway, at a community level, um, some communities have organized around, we want to do what's best for the community. We are going to force the stakeholders to come to the table and talk to each other. And that's usually a mayor, a governor, um, some person of substance says, I'm going to convene you guys, you're going to come together, and we're going to talk about the distribution of care in this community and affordability, and why you have all this duplication of service, and why we can't find some other way to do it. London, 15 years ago, had 70 hospitals that took care of strokes. They now have 12, and their results on the treatment of strokes have gotten remarkably better because they got 12 super centers means 58 hospitals don't have any revenue from stroke care. 58 hospitals gave up a line of business. And so for that to happen, there has to be a real conversation around that because it's very hard to say to a hospital uh, CEO, we want you to take 15% of your gross revenue away and we don't necessarily have anything to give you back. See, that's the part that surprises me. But that's where communities start to think together around Yes, I have 400,000 people I'm directly responsible for, but I'm a citizen of a community of a million. That's the fourth question. That's the wicked yeah. question. And that's where Warren Buffett ought to be asking those questions. And I, I think it's I think it's yeah, time. I, I would think that some of these 58 hospitals 
they might already be set up with something else. So like, okay, you've all had ortho surgery. Now we have 15 hospitals that are going to do ortho and you just sort of mix yep. it up and mix it around and strategically place them around the city or around the country so that everybody has a better way to access it. They don't all have to be in London because the whole north side of the country is not going to have one. Um, like even down right. here, my right. hospital is the only one that has an MRI. The public hospital doesn't have one. They only have CT. So we get a lot of patients just coming for the... And where are you located? I'm in the Yunnan of China. Okay. That's so, southern? Yeah. Yeah, it's southern near Vietnam. Mm. Um, so, you know, that they're not trying to purchase one. So they just send all the clients that need a, an MRI to us. And then they go right back to wherever they were. And uh, we don't poach them, which is kind of nice. Dr. Cochran, is there a website where people can get more information? Or do they just need to go to Amazon and pick up your book? Amazon, pick up my book. I have a website, www.techcochranmd.com, that has some of my papers. And I'm also a professional speaker. People want to have me speak. But uh, yeah, I, you know, this is very self-serving, but this is, this is a niche book. It's not going to be some big commercial success. But I really hope people read this book because the lessons that I have learned and that I have shared are so attainable and I wouldn't say they're simple but they're pretty simple they're straightforward and it really talks about leading your fellow man because doctors um, are very independent people and we have to have some sense of how physician leadership can be effective and this book is like a manual and I, I say that people who really become good leaders will have two copies of this book one in their backpack and one on their desk because they will be referring to it so often it's definitely a conversation starter among our own peers, for sure. Yeah. All right. Well, Doc, thank you so much for, for coming on the show. I know, like I just said, if, if I can get more people to listen to this, there's a very good chance that there'll be a lot of Facebook conversations about, hey, did you read that book? What did you think about this? And part of it sometimes is just getting the conversation going so yep. that you can make bigger changes in the future. So That'd thank you again for taking your time and, and coming on the podcast. Thanks. Thanks for your time and for the opportunity. That wraps up another episode. If you can, send me a review. That's .net slash subscribe. Apple, Google, Stitcher, Android devices. You just click that button. It'll take you exactly to the page you need to. You can write a review, hopefully a five-star review. Like I said, it does help for other people to discover what we're doing here. And one thing I haven't really talked about too much is the doctorsperspective.net slash support page. If you want to host a cup of coffee, go for it. If you want to pledge a little higher fee, there's buttons for that. There's even monthly recurring for those who feel like, wow, this is like the cheapest mentor coach program I've ever seen because you interview so many different kinds of doctors and, and I've been able to implement things that I've heard and it works. So monthly recurring payments, which also can get you my books for free, t-shirts for free. Uh, the first book, you know, that deals with health and exercise, getting on a diet, getting your financial health in order as well. Things I've learned in China, you know, that book is available as well. And one thing that I don't have, I don't have like a, a full-blown page about coaching and things, but there's a little button there. I've had people request, hey, doctors and non-doctors asking me, can I do more than just answer a couple of questions? Or could you be my coach for a little while? And I say, yeah, we can do that. So it's something I haven't really advertised, but it's something that I can do and do, whether it's marketing, some strategies for new patients, growth, those types of topics. If you're interested, just email me, justin at a doctorsperspective.net. If you have any ideas for guests, please send me an email, justin at a doctorsperspective.net. I'd love to hear who you think would be good or a profession that you may not have heard yet. And we've got over 100 episodes. This is going to be like our third year. Super excited. We're going to have a little mini series like we've been doing, which has been fun. Hope you've enjoyed them as well. That's, that's the feedback I've gotten. 
I want to remind everybody that we have some great affiliate links available. If you're into instrument-assisted soft tissue manipulation, we've got the Edge tool and we've got the Hawk Grips. Saves you about 10%. Also with the Edge, you've got the uh, like blood pressure cuff restriction system. You've got the G Suite inexpensive EMR in case you'd like doing cash practice. And of course, I got my own electric acupuncture pin to go with the no needle acupuncture book. From time to time, you know, I'll have a bundle set where you can get them all together for a great price. I also have the free downloads at doctorsperspective.net slash blueprints. And what lately I've been doing is substituting a fifth one, like I've done a knee. And depending on the guest, I might do a different type. So check back there. You've got the primal paleo grass-fed protein bone broth style. Save 10% on that. No sugar, allergy-free, gluten-free, dairy-free, all those types of things. Mentor box, get taught by the author. We got set for set for those floss bands that you may have heard about on one of the episodes. I really like those. If you want to know what hosting I use for podcasting, it's Blueberry. Pure VPN, that's one of those ones I use to help keep my payments secure as well as access the internet more safely. Any Amazon products that you might want, click the link in the show notes pages. So all those resources can be found at doctorsperspective.net slash resources. There's also t-shirts at .net slash t-shirts. Put up some new designs from time to time, like making lemons out of lemonade, shrimp po' boy, plus all the chiropractic and podcast swag that you could want. As always, listen, critically think, and implement. Have a great week. We just went hashtag behind the curtain. I hope you will listen and integrate what some of these guests have said. By all means, please share across your social media, write a review, and if you go to the show notes page, you can find all the references for today's guest. You've been listening to Dr. Justin Trostclair, giving you a doctor's perspective. <laughs>